Well, as I said, uh, my name is Nathan Detweiler. I'm the senior pastor here, for those who don't know me. And we are going through a small series on our core values as a church. And today's value that we're looking at is God's Word. Knowing and obeying God's Word is fundamental to all true success. Knowing and obeying God's Word is fundamental to all true success in life. If our, if our, if our uh, denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, had a mission statement, they said, it would be Matthew 28, where it says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are, it's called the Great Commission. It's where we're reaching out to our community and to the ends of the earth with the gospel. That's what Wilmington trip is about. That's what our trips to, to Miami and to Bosnia are about, and all of our missions endeavors. That's what all of our local outreaches are about. And even, even this Western Roundup next week is about reaching our community with the love of Christ. So th- this is a huge part of our mission statement. But the very next verse after that passage in Matthew 28 says, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's not enough to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but we have to teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded them so that they can have successful lives of following God. You know, knowledge without obedience just puffs people up. And uh, that's why it's possible for someone who knows the Bible better than you to be uh, not as far along in their spiritual development because it's about obedience. It says in James 1, 23 to 25, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who's awesome that does a great job. Awesome. No, it says, that's like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. That's pretty silly. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom into the word and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in all they do. Knowing and obeying God's word is fundamental to all true success. So today I want to talk about the Bible, the scriptures, God's word to us. Now, why is this such an exceptional and interesting book? Why is it our core text as believers? What does the Bible say about itself? What is the power of the Bible? How do we know the value of this book that God has preserved for us with his words in it? And to look, to look at this question, we're going to turn to 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 17. If you have a Bible, you can read along. Otherwise, you can follow on the screen. This is Paul writing to his young apprentice who's training for ministry, Timothy. He says to Timothy, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, in fact, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every 
good work. A word from, from the Word of God about the Word of God. Pretty amazing thing. So I'm trying, I'm, I'm look, going for a, uh, a world record of how many mandolin references I can make in, in sermons this year for 2020. So I decided today was no different. I want to show you, this is my pride and joy. Uh, this, this is my mandolin. It's a flat top mandolin. My mandolin. I'm not here to, to show off. It's that this mandolin has such a beautiful sound to it that it makes me want to pick it up again and again and again. The first mandolin that I received was a gift from my wife, a surprise gift for Christmas, and I, I uh, had no idea it was coming. I didn't ask for it. I'd never desired to play mandolin. But, you know, many years ago, she bought me a mandolin for Christmas. Best. It was the best. And I picked it up, and I just fell in love with it. And uh, in, in 2012-13, I got to the point where I really wanted to invest in a, in a, in a professional kind of mandolin. And, th- and the way you delineate between a starter mandolin and, and, a, and a professional style mandolin, or any wooden instrument is, starter instruments are made from compressed plywood, like compressed lumber. That's why they're so inexpensive. And that's also why their tone and sound isn't as good. So some guitars sound better than others. What delineates a, a, a very nice-sounding instrument from a not-so-nice one is the wood that's used. And solid wood instruments have a totally distinct and different sound than do other ones. So uh, this, this mandolin happened to be a gift to me, which I am amazed by. I didn't ask for it. This was also a gift to me. <laughs> but the man who built it, I gave him exact specifications as to what I wanted because I became, like many men, and I know you guys, and maybe some women too, but I know it's a man thing. When you get obsessed with something, you go online, you research it forever. Some of you buy it without talking to your spouse, and then apologize later. <laughs> but, but men are sort of obsessive when they buy things, I've noticed. Maybe some women are like that too, but I've noticed, especially with men. I just, I looked into to, to uh, hardwood mandolins. I looked into the tone woods to understand how can I get the best combination that I can get. So I chose a mahogany-topped mandolin with a rosewood back and sides. And the person who built it for me, he nicknamed my mandolin Frankenstein. He said, it might not be pretty, but I think it's going to sound really good. And I, I actually think it turned out very well. I like the way it looks. But it's very unusual to have a mahogany-topped instrument. I think there's one Martin guitar with a mahogany top, and then the whole body is mahogany. But very unusual for a, a front wood. Uh, the rosewood's a little more common. But each of these woods has a different characteristic, and I wanted to see how can we blend this thing up. So here we're going to geek out together, talk about my obsession with solid wood instruments. So mahogany, and I, get, I got this off, off the websites I've researched, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a twangy sound, but it's more of a brilliant wood. It's not big sounding, but it has a a distinct character to it. If you listen to early Beatles records, they were playing mahogany uh, instruments, their their acoustic guitars. It has that kind of rockabilly sound. Uh, Rosewood 
has a beautiful, rich variety of brown and purple colors. It makes a warm, rich-sounding instrument with great resonance and volume. So a lot of bluegrass guitars and mandolins have rosewood bodies for that reason. So the, the two together, you get the best of both worlds. And I can honestly say, every hardwood instrument will have a different sound from any other one. You could have the same uh, brand, the same manufacturer, two different pieces of wood, different sounding mandolin or guitar. Very interesting stuff. So you'll never hear that again until I bring it out again during a sermon, which, you know, hopefully I, can, I, I got my fill for now. So here's the amazing thing about hardwood instruments. A piece of wood, and I'm going to be a little academic here, contains a lot, countless cellulose fibers made up of hemicellulose and lignin, which run in the same direction as the visible grain of the wood. When, a, when an instrument like a guitar is played, these fibers are forced to flex back and forth, effectively breaking and becoming looser. And this loosening allows the fibers in the instrument to flex more easily, meaning that they'll require less energy to move, that they'll, be more, they'll move more when energy is applied than they would have before breaking down. In practice, this helps an instrument gain volume and put out frequencies that wouldn't have been possible when it was brand new. What does this mean? If you play a solid wood instrument, the vibrations from playing it will change the wood and make it more flexible and bendy and will change the sound and improve the sound of an instrument over time. That's a crazy thing to think a solid piece of wood changes as you play it. So the more you play an instrument, the better it sounds. Second thing, aging. As a guitar or mandolin ages, it loses some of that hemicellulose due to evaporation and that makes the wood flex even more easily. And for that reason, guitar makers will often excitedly try to sell guitars by saying, this is made of, of wood from the 70s. We, we dried this wood, we saved it for all this time. It's, it's got better quality to it. So when I bought my guitar, I bought a 1995 guitar because I wanted a guitar that was a little bit older and had a little bit better sound quality to it. I know Jerome is excited by this part of the sermon. He loves, he loves, he loves wood more than I do. What an amazing thing, though, that the guitar or mandolin made of solid wood, even though it's no longer connected to the tree from which it was cut, and it's complete, that it changes as it's played and as time goes forward. We would be tempted to think of the wood that a mandolin is made of as dead, but to our surprise, it's, it's not. It continues to live, to change, and to evolve, to produce different tones and sounds. In one sense, it's complete, the instrument's complete, but in another sense, it's still alive and growing. And someday, long after I'm dead and gone, I pray my mandolin will be in my great-great-great-grandchild's hands or in someone else's hands, and it will sound better than it ever has. This is what the greatest picture I could imagine for how to describe God's Word. God's Word is complete. It isn't growing anymore in terms of material. In fact, it has a strong warning at the end of Revelation that we shouldn't be adding to the back of our Bibles any new passages. It's complete. But we shouldn't make, this, make the mistake that just because it's complete, that it isn't alive anymore. Unlike any book that exists, the Bible, though it is complete and exhaustive in Old and New Testaments that we have here, is still alive and still brimming with life. Just like tone woods, the Bible grows in, in, in its, how it works 
over time as you sit with it and read it. As you allow the vibrations, so to speak, from God's word to go into your life and begin straightening out things inside of you and you internalize it. I mean, people find that, uh, that they're changed over time. Beginning with the end of our passage um, from 2 Timothy 3, we're going to work our way backwards this morning to look at what the Word of God says about itself. In this very famous passage, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I don't know what you've heard about the Bible or what you think about the Bible, but the earliest Christians who were closest to its writing and its completion believed that the reason the Scriptures were alive was because God had breathed on them in the first place, that God had breathed on the Scriptures, and that that creative breath of God was still present in a mysterious way in these written words of the Bible by the power of the Holy Spirit. They believed it was breathed by God and continued to breathe. The word translated in our scripture as God breathed is a word that uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce. It's a Greek word, which, which often means inspired. But that word was originally from, from a, a Latin word that, that meant in-breathed. So if we say, if we were to substitute that in here, all scripture is in-breathed by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's in-breathed. But when we have a word like inspire that we, that we know, we know that word inspire, it can be confusing and maybe lose some of the, the power that the original readers had of this in-breathed word of God. When we think of inspired, we think about artists and we think of poets and performers or even athletes. We say that someone did something inspiring as an athlete or as an as a artist. Or maybe we read a book and we're inspired to write a book or we're inspired to do something based on what the book says. But the problem with our word uh, for inspired is it doesn't come even close to what the original writers of the Bible meant when they said the word inspired. In-breathed. In verse 16, Paul says, this book, the Bible, actually has living breath in it. It's God's breath for us. This is why so many of you who reflected on reading through the Bible with us in Mission 119, you decided I'm going to read through the Bible over two years with my church, Mission 119. I heard so many reports of people who said, I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't realize that this, this was a special kind of book. Like, it's, it's changed me. Testimony after testimony, people that have spent time in this God-breathed book experienced transformation, inner transformation, like vibrations in their soul that just straightened out so many things inside and made God, made God uh, brought to a, a real experience in their lives. Like the mandolin, though the book is complete, it's still living, breathing, transforming, and life-changing by the power of the Spirit who originally inspired it. And depending on which Christian you talk to, on which day, God's Word in the Bible is playing many different songs in many different lives. God's Spirit is constantly breathing in and out 
the words of Scripture every time you crack a Bible. Breathing in and breathing out for you. And if you will read and obey what you come to know in the inspired word, you will be successful as a Christian. That's what we believe. Knowing and obeying God's word is fundamental to all true success. The word, ha- the, the word has living breath in it. And it's the breath of God himself. This thought has been very inspiring to me as I've considered how I'm going to go through the Bible after Mission 119 and continue in it, that it's a powerful book that's changing lives. The Bible is a very interesting book because it's very different as you go through it. Lots of different types of literature. What really blows my mind is that it had 40, over 40 authors and was written over 1,500 years, but it has a consistent message. And people will write books uh, pointing out the things that seemingly contradict and don't really work out. But if you, if you were to see the amount of things that do work out compared to the ones that apparently don't work out, it's like a drop in the bucket. It's an incredible miracle. Over 40 authors, over 1,500 years. And the part that's so amazing about this fact is that many people, when they say the Bible is inspired by God, you know, they, they think that God pretty much just put someone in a trance and that person just started writing, like no personality, no personal experience, no context, just sort of wrote, the, wrote what God said to them. Because we, we think to ourselves, how could God entrust a fallible people like us to write the, write the Bible? You know, how could he have entrusted that to those imperfect people? But, but it's very clear when you read through the Bible that he did. He did just that. The Bible, with all of its 40 uh, authors over its long period of time, contains people writing in their own style, with their own typically used words, within their own cultures, their personalities, their careers, and their circumstances. And all of those people looked at God and what he was inspiring them to write and wrote it in their own special way. It really is flattened quite a bit when you read a translation like we have. But when you go to the original languages and people that study this stuff, you see there's an immense amount of personality in the Bible, all the way down to Paul giving Timothy some advice on how to ease his stomach troubles. You know, there's a lot of personality there, a lot of, a lot of stuff. Just because it's inspired doesn't mean it's flat. It's very varied. Peter described this 1,500-year Bible writing process in this way in 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21. He said, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So so all of the Scripture has God's living breath imbued into its words so that we can hear directly from God when we read our Bibles. Whenever we pick them up, God chose to use 40-plus authors with their own unique personalities and viewpoints, and even levels of education to share that inspired, God-breathed word with us. And even though each author was being fully themselves when they wrote their part, they were all equally inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit so that the Bible has become for us useful to everyone to read and be trained and equipped for life and godliness. One of the places this is most clear is, is, in the, is in two different Gospels. So you have four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each, each an author from a different context writing to a different audience in a different way, using different words. 
And Luke is, is a doctor. The, the writer of Luke is a doctor, and he's very precise, like a surgeon. He, he interviews eyewitnesses. He also wrote the book of, of Acts. And, uh, and he writes exactly as he, as he interviews people and, and, and puts his own experiences together. He uses very high-level academic Greek, very refined, very nice. People that love to read original languages love, love his style and his, his writing. Then there's Mark. And you really can't see it in the translations that we have. But some people that have translated Mark call him old stump fingers, which is not very flattering. Someone who is, who is not as highly educated as Luke. And, and, and the quote that I read, one scholar said that uh, Mark wrote more clumsily and ungrammatically in an unpolished Greek style. So he wrote clumsily, ungrammatically, an unpolished Greek style. In a fast-paced, breakneck way, with fewer overall details, it's the shortest gospel. And the amazing thing is that both Mark and Luke are inspired by God, by the same Spirit. They contain the breath of God, but, but God used two very different people to write them. I think that's very encouraging to think that in God's imagination, he's decided to not be the perfectionist type A control freak, but he, he delights to use people like you and me of all different backgrounds, levels of education, genders, races, you name it. Any way you can, you can separate people, God uses everybody in amazing ways, and he doesn't correct their grammar. Isn't that nice for some of you? And I think that Bible composition process tells us something about God that I really want us to f- focus on this morning. It's that God doesn't want a flat text. And, he doesn't, and I believe that he doesn't also want a flat church, a flat ministry. God is after beauty, diversity of voices, styles, and character. And God wants to use you to, to minister, even if you just came to Christ last year or if you were born into a Christian family and have been a Christian forever. You know, God wants us all to participate in this ministry. And he's shown that and proven that through the people he's used in history. You know, the, uh, uneducated men and women, for the most part. Luke was an exception to share his word with the world. So God wants the doctor and the lawyer to share his word, the, gro- the grocery store clerk, the public school teacher, the warehouse worker, the college professor, the mechanic, the city worker, salesperson, state employee, I call them work-at-home parents, (laughs) retired people, students, underemployed and unemployed, male, female, old, young, every ethnicity in existence, every level of brain power, bodily strength, ability or disability, God wants to use everybody to share his word. And even the composition of the Bible shows us this beautiful fact. Forty authors over 1,500 years with complete diversity— carried along and inspired by God's Spirit. That's the written Word of God, which is breathed into and is still breathing out to us every time we choose to open it with expectation. I believe just, just as God wants each individual to, to refract the light that he puts in them differently, that God also has a dream for the local church, that every local church would be a unique expression of him to the community in which it is situated I was telling two close friends from church this past weekend that 
I think God wants every church to be unique, local expressions of who God is for the sake of the community that they live in. That the people in that community would come to know Christ in a way that makes sense to them because they're hearing it from their people in their way. And that's why you can't really import one church model to another part of the world and have it work. This was the problem with the purpose-driven life movement. It wasn't that Rick Warren's book wasn't a great book. It wasn't that it wasn't exciting. It's that you can't take a church model from Southern California and bring it to upstate New York and expect it to work. It's not going to work. And that's something that has been admitted, you know. That's what we, have, we always have to be careful when we read ministry how-to books or whatever uh, that, are, that happen somewhere very different from where we live. It doesn't always make sense. God's after uniqueness. God's after diversity. And I think that every church, just like the uniqueness of this particular mandolin, God has a different note to play. That's what I believe. That's what makes me excited about new life. It's also nice not to have to measure yourself by, the, by any other thing but what God is, is doing, if, if possible. Many people come to the Bible uh, believing before they read it that it's going to reinforce what they already think. And this is an error. Something that I've been set free from week after week after week, including in last week's sermon. I, I, I had a different idea of where I was going with that sermon. It was based on taking a scripture out of context and having it in my brain, saying, oh, that's a good one for this, for this one. And I read the whole context, and I said to myself, I think it's saying something different. And that's where last week's sermon came from. God's word is always flying in the face of what you already think. And that's pretty, pretty cool, also pretty frustrating probably. It means we have to grow. Whatever system of theology you, you come to Christ in, whatever denomination you come from, whether you are unchurched in your background, reformed in your background, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, or Christian Missionary Alliance, which is our denomination, inspiration of the scriptures does not mean that the Bible will necessarily support your theological system. This is why I'll have an idea for a sermon, and after studying the Word of God, it changes. The Word of God, living and active, and God-breathed, is here to challenge our previously held assumptions about God and about life and how the world works. And it's, it's very challenging when you consider that knowing and obeying God's Word determines success. As we know the Word, it challenges us, then we have, to, we have to change, we have to grow, we have to be different. And that's where the growth comes. So you can read the Bible and repent of part of, part of your Reformed theology or all of it, you can repent of your Baptist theology, change your mind, your Pentecostal theology, or your Christian Missionary Alliance theology. You can change your mind because the Bible is always there to challenge our previously held assumptions about the nature of reality and of God. And we have to come to the Bible open to that. It's very easy to come to the Bible with your previous ideas and see only the things that reinforce your previously held thought. Confirmation bias, I think that's called. But to come to the Bible truly open... Let, let it challenge you. Let it make you uncomfortable. And then to change, that's what it means to obey the word of God and let it change you. And for me, this feels like being set free from a prison. Because I feel like sometimes theological systems where people are really nice and tidy and, and uh, together, it's very intimidating. You feel like, do I have to, I have to like, accept every part of the system or I'm not like a real good Christian? No, that's not the truth. We are free from those systems because the Bible is always going to challenge and affirm 
and challenge our systems. One of the reasons I do love this denomination is because we have a very small statement of faith. While, while, while some denominations will have pages and pages and pages and books of theology that you need to sign on to before you become a member or a Christian or whatever, everyone's got their own standards, ours is very small. So it allows for a lot of diversity within the body of Christ, which I love. And that's a great thing. So going back to 2 Timothy 3, working our way backwards, we round towards the finish line here, going to 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, about the word of God. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What it says here is that this God-breathing scripture has the power to make us wise for salvation. To help us to think in new ways. To see the world in a way we've never seen it before. To help us to understand other people. To understand ourselves and the world. And it does this because God's word not only reveals who God is, but as we read and reflect on what it says, whether it is systematic theology, such as in the book of Romans, where it's very orderly, or stories of God's people, like in the book of Exodus or the book of Acts, or poetry or prophecy, or sayings of wisdom, such as in Proverbs. As we read, reflect, and have the God-breathing words seep into our lives, we begin to grow wise in our, in our conscious and our subconscious selves. This is like those vibrations as you, as you daily pick up that Bible and you run your pick along the strings of that Bible. The vibrations go into the wood, making it more flexible, making it grow, expanding your world, expanding your wineskin, even to the point of bursting for some people. This is what God's Word does when you go into it daily. Wisdom becomes deep-rooted and even second nature to you. The Bible doesn't just give us information, but in the way it's written, in the, in the stories, we can see how we, we can relate to different people in the Bible. And I, I thought it was so powerful. A good friend of mine from church was telling me how they related to an Old Testament character, and it was a way I'd never thought of before. And he had just made this connection, like, you know, I'm, I'm like this guy. And it really gave him wisdom. And I thought, this is, this is such an amazing thing. When you're in the Word of God, it might not speak to you in that moment, but God brings it back and, and shows you how your life runs parallel to other men and women of God that have, have lived before you. And that wisdom becomes deep-rooted. It becomes, makes you wise unto salvation. And finally, back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So God-breathing Scripture will not only teach you and give you wisdom unto salvation, it will also at times rebuke you. This is something the Bible does. And what is translated as rebuke is a Greek word that means correction or reproof. And what is translated as correction in the Greek means restoration to an upright or right state, correction, improvement of life and character. So in addition to teaching us, God's breathing word will bluntly tell us when something in our life is out of line with God's will and just needs to stop. That's why the obedience to God's word is so important to determine success. And as we read stories of other imperfect people who follow God imperfectly and relate to their struggles and read theology, we hear God's subtle and sometimes very loud and in-your-face word to us 
that we are just like the people we're reading about, that there is something in our life that needs to change urgently, or we will have a downfall in our lives. So when God tries to communicate with us through his word, we need to pay attention, whether it's a rebuke, a correction, or an affirmation of something good in us that we should feel good about. You know, all of those things happen as we engage the word of God openly. God breathes word, lives out God's true love and concern for each of us, and reflects God's desire to see us succeed in our Christian walk of following him. That's what God's word does. Because knowing and obeying his word is what is fundamental to all true success. And all of this teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training is meant for God's purpose in our lives, which is found in verse 17, where it says that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, God wants us to be equipped at the end of the day. That's what he wants. He wants to do it through his word so that we can successfully follow him. As I said before, God doesn't want us all to look exactly the same, the cookie cutter. He wants each of us as individuals, as small local expressions of the church to become all that he intends us to be. The God-breathing word is intended to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness so that those of us who belong to God can become complete, lacking nothing, reflecting the many sides of God's glory that he wants to show to the world and to our community. And he desires to give us his knowledge and wisdom through his word so that we can share with everyone around us. And I think that's an amazing thought. So God's word is, is like a mandolin. It's complete, but it's ever-growing and expanding in its capacity to create truly unique and beautiful tones and resonances. Beauty. But just because it's complete, it does not mean it's not still alive. God's word is in-breathed, has living breath in it. And it's the breath of God himself in your life when you approach it this way. And the challenge for us is very simple. Will we be a people who read God's word and hear from God ourselves through the many voices, the many stories, and even theological treatises that he shares with us? God never promises that a believer is going to be thoroughly equipped for every good work outside of the Bible. There's no promise that you will be thoroughly equipped. It's, 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 it's conditional on us being in the word. I want to be well-equipped. I want to have everything and every tool that I need. I want to become wise unto salvation. I don't want to walk around in the dark. For that, Jesus says, my word, my word. For knowing and obeying God's word is fundamental to all true success in life. I want to pray specifically that God gives us wisdom as to how we should engage with his word. When we were doing Mission 119, it was such a wonderful daily thing. And I know many of you restarted it. But what is, what is our plan to engage with this book? If we don't engage with it, as individuals, as a church, like we're doing right now, we will not be equipped for all God has for us to be and to do, and the unique expression he's trying to make in Saratoga Springs. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, for your word. It is a miracle. It's a miracle, God. It's a beautiful work of art, and we are thankful for the way it has affected our lives. We pray for more, Lord, that we would find a way to engage with your word more consistently, more often, that we might be changed, that we might become wise into salvation and thoroughly equipped for every work that you're calling us to as individuals, as a church, God. We thank you for your grace to us and your love to us in giving us this written word, for preserving it for us. And we treasure that, God. 
Give us the courage to read it with an open mind and an open heart without laying our own expectations upon it so that it can truly speak to us and transform us. And give us hearts that always, uh, when we learn something new, ask, is there something I need to obey here? Is there some way I need to come into line with Jesus more as a result of what I've read today? Lord, give us that check that we might not become puffed up with knowledge, that we'd become mature, deep, humble uh, followers of yours. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name.